Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We have a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Heather Ann Thompson into our studios today. She's a professor of history in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies uh, Residential College and Department of History at the University of Michigan, and written this new book, which is just, I think, uh, one of the most powerful dynamic books I've read in a long time um, about something that many people may have forgotten about. It's called Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. Uh, and as she walked into the studio today, she discovered, and now we all will discover that she's been nominated for a National Book Award for this book. Congratulations on that, and welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. It deserves a nomination. So well, really thank, you. thank you. So let's take ourselves back. I mean, we did a program the other week with uh, Abashi Rose and Jared Ball, two friends and colleagues who produced this incredible documentary around George Jackson for the anniversary of his death. But shortly after George Jackson was murdered, um, there was this prison rebellion in Attica. And people, the name Attica pops in folks' head, but they really don't know, I think, any more the significance of what that was. So talk a bit about your sojourn into this book. Yeah, so I think for uh, historians like me, we always knew the name Attica as a really important civil rights and human rights struggle. But uh, when you tried to dig and say, well, what really happened? What was that history? There were some pretty amazing memoirs and some great documentary footage, but but not much information. Uh, and that was pretty astounding considering the fact that nearly 1,300 men had stood together, uh, demanded very basic human rights, and for their troubles were uh, gunned down. It was, And there was an utter massacre there. So for me, it was just something that we had to kind of get dig into, try to tell the history really for the first time. And it, and it took 13 years to actually get that story. And let's go back to what the story was. We're talking about a, a rebellion that almost didn't happen, but happened. And you talk about the conditions in the prison. 43 people were killed in the retaking of that prison. 39, 39 in the retaking. Uh-huh. I'm going be 39. Uh, hostages and and people who were incarcerated, yeah. And I remember that day very well because all the news was about how the inmates had slit the throats of the hostages, um, had uh, at, mm-hmm. were were brutalizing the hostages, and and all the things you write about in the beginning of the book about how the the uh, all the facts, all the documents have been hidden, mm-hmm. locked away, nobody could get them, redacted, tells a much different story. Exactly. So um, when this happens, as you mentioned, um, the guys inside Attica were deeply inspired by people like George Jackson because there were prisoners all over the country who were just crying out for some attention to the conditions behind bars. Attica's guys tried to do the same thing. They tried to work through the system first. Um, ultimately, they end up in this rebellion, which which we can talk about. But the most astounding thing about its end was that the state of New York spun a completely different narrative about what had happened, uh, literally told the, the, the nation and really the world, because this went out on the front page of every newspaper and uh, through the AP, so every small town newspaper, they said the prisoners had killed the hostages at Attica. And that simply isn't what happened. Uh, and the more I dug into this book, I began to see how that lie had spread. Um, the state had a very uh, orchestrated and careful attempt to control the narrative of what had happened at Attica. So at that moment, Governor, uh, the governor of New York was Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, right. the liberal Republican. Right, right. So Rockefeller's the liberal Republican, but his party at that moment was moving uh, majorly rightward. Nixon's in the White House. 
Rockefeller very much wanted to be the president, uh, probably was quite bitter that it was Nixon, not him. And uh, Attica became this event where he could draw a line in the sand, where he could show he was tough on crime. And, of course, that moment, 1971, uh, Attica, is a real pivot because uh, – pivot in the 20th century because right after that, of course, it's Rockefeller's drug laws that then get uh, passed across the country and uh, leads us into this massive prison buildup that we're reckoning with today. But could you just talk a bit about – let's describe what that moment was like. I mean, the, 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 at the end of the book, you – you talk about what happened with the Correctional Officers Association, how they talked about these new prisoners and why they have to be contained and who they were and the conditions that led to what happened and what was okay. going on exactly at that moment in Attica, who these men were inside that prison. Right. So this is uh, nearly 2,400 men in Attica. It's a severely overcrowded maximum security facility in upstate New York. Uh, contrary to what I think most folks thought at the time and would think now, though, the, the guys inside were a really uh, mixed group of guys. Uh, there were uh, Puerto Rican prisoners, African-American prisoners, white prisoners, young, really some really young guys, 19 years old, some of them there on parole violations. A whole lot of guys there on property crime convictions for drug addiction. Um, and this group of people wanted things such as uh, more toilet paper. I mean, they had— One uh, roll a month. Right. So that's one sheet a one day. One sheet a day, they said. Right. Right. Uh, two quarts of water in their cell a day to do everything, to wash yourself, to wash your cell, to wash your clothes. Um, you know, terrible medical uh, treatment, I document. Uh, you know, guys are losing their teeth because there's no medical care there, uh, dental care there. Some, there's deaths as a result of the bad medical care. So they try, again, to write to their state senator, to the commissioner of corrections, um, and are really not heard. Um, the actual moment that becomes the Attica Rebellion, though, starts quite unexpectedly. It, it starts as a result of a management decision to retaliate uh, against some prisoners for an altercation the night before. And they chose to lock them in this hallway, didn't tell the guards running those companies that this was going to happen, and panic ensues. So first it's a riot because it's, it's people are terrified. They're arming themselves. The, the prison quickly becomes chaotic. But the story is really about the next four days where these guys, uh, they elect leaders from each cell block to speak for them. They bring in the media. They ask for observers. And for the first time, uh, the nation gets a real look at who are these prisoners and what do prisons look like and what happens behind bars. And thus begins the Attica Rebellion. And 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 the and this and it was interesting that I think another piece of this that it's important um, the the people you develop for us in the book both the guards who are hostages and the people running the system and the men who took over the prison the inmates themselves um, that they made these demands and really were quite humane in their treatment of the people around them right which was the opposite of what we were told. Exactly. So imagine a situation where, of course, in the initial moments of the riot, uh, there's a great deal of violence. Uh, hostages are getting hurt. One of them will ultimately die of his injuries uh, from those initial moments. But in the yard, uh, the hostages are protected. They're surrounded by uh, two rings of prisoners. The black Muslim prisoners were indeed the really uh, responsible for protecting the hostages. They were fed. They were given mattresses. They were protected. 
uh, and there was uh, protection all around in the yard for the guys. But what was being told, by the way, in no small part because the FBI was on the scene rumor-mongering, was that they were standing at uh, hostages at attention, threatening to shoot them in the head should they should they not remain standing. I mean, it, it, literally uh, spreading uh, falsehoods that were in turn riling up uh, the now by day three, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of troopers who had uh, state, state, state troopers, troopers state and right and corrections officers who had come to Attica itching to get in, and um, so yeah, they were being fueled on this you know just just charged uh, rumor uh, mill, uh, really again at the highest levels helping to instigate. And the governor refused to negotiate. Yeah, the governor did not want to negotiate, although he did uh, allow his commissioner of corrections, this really hapless, liberal, you know, sort of very tragic figure, Russell Oswald. He does allow that him to negotiate. And um, but, you know, my my research shows the governor was intending to come in from the very beginning with force. And the only reason it didn't happen earlier, frankly, was that there was a team of observers there with some very high profile names uh, in the bunch. And um, they successfully, uh, you know, stalled, I think, this retaking for a number of days, but ultimately were not able to stop it. And so you go into really intense, grueling and gruesome detail, and that's not a criticism. I think that's important for people to get a sense of the moment that we're in of when the state troopers and correction officers and National Guard— Oh, they didn't, National Guard don't, don't retake the prison. Right, but no, no, yeah, but, they but were, they're there. They're there. Yes, absolutely. Um, because they bore witness, many of these yes, men absolutely. bore witness to what happened. But you, you, to, the, to, to really kind of detail about what happened to people, the inmates and the hostages, yeah. and how they were killed, and how they were wounded, and how they were treated. Yes, and, you know, frankly, for, for your listeners, if they have an opportunity to look at the book, I mean, not only is that the hardest section to read in the book, um, Very hard. it was also uh, re- incredibly difficult to write because, one, as a historian, you know, I, I felt very, you know, inadequate to come up with a language that could really articulate what what I was um, hearing people say had happened to them. And so often you'll actually just hear from the people who experienced it. Um Nearly 600 uh, state troopers uh, and uh, corrections officers armed to the teeth. They had been passing out personal weapons, passing out state weapons indiscriminately. Nobody's writing down serial numbers. There's no accountability. Um, And um, they are ripping off their identifying badges before they go in. Uh, And when they go in, uh, the entire inside population, hostages and prisoners, have almost been completely immobilized because the state has just dropped a toxic powder of CN gas over the yard, which is in their nasal passages. People are retching. They are are blinded. They are falling to the ground. And that's when these guys go in shooting thousands of bullets uh, and buckshot spray indiscriminately across the yard. Uh, and yeah, it, the trauma is 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 quite difficult to capture, but but um, but powerful, I think. I mean, it is. You mind if I? You oh, want to read a little piece of your book? Oh, cool. Anyway, we don't do this, but it's just. I mean, this is part of the retaking that you write about. Just you said, Mike Smith felt the impact of the prisoner on his right being shot twice. The last shot literally catapulted him over the railing of a catwalk. In a futile attempt to save both himself and Mike from being hit. Don Noble pulled him to the left as the man immediately behind him received a fatal volley of gunfire. But the shots reached them anyway. Mike's abdomen was on fire as four bullets ripped across in a straight line. 
He was also shot in the arm, which felt like it had been torn from his body. The bullets then entered Mike's stomach, dead center, right between his navel and his genitals, exploding upon impact, which sent shrapnel downward to his spine. One exiting slug took the base of Mike's spine along with it, leaving a hole the size of a grapefruit in his intestines. All Mike could hear around him as shooting kept going on was people crying, people dying, people screaming. As he lay curled up, bleeding profusely, Mike suddenly found himself looking up into the eyes of a trooper who had a shotgun pointed directly at his head. Somewhere close by, he heard a correction officer yell to the trooper, He's one of us! and started to breathe a sigh of relief. Then he realized sickeningly that the trooper had simply recited his weapon on Don Noble, who lay bleeding next to him. Weakly, Mike tried to tell the trooper, He saved my life. To his relief, he faded in and out of consciousness. He saw that Noble seemed to have been spared. But many were not spared. That's right. I mean, and these and these were people in prison who were trying to defend the guards, but were just, I mean, and then you describe people being stabbed by screwdrivers and sodomized by screwdrivers mm-hmm. by the police. Yeah. In 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 the retake of the prison. And and in the passage that you read, um, uh, just to clarify for the listeners, um, Mike Smith was a guard. He was a hostage, but Don Noble was a prisoner. And in a passage right before that, you know, they right before the the the, the troopers come in. Uh, they can literally feel the concussion of the uh, helicopter blades circling overhead while this gas is being dumped, and, and they're terrified. And they and they are trying to exchange personal information with each other in case either of them get out alive to tell their loved ones, uh, you know, that they were that they were loved. And so, yeah, uh, and and they were both lucky, uh, if you can call it lucky. I mean, Mike Smith uh, endured a lifetime of trauma as a result of his injuries, uh, but many weren't. And and that was just the beginning. Um, the shooting was the beginning of the trauma. The, the abuse and the outright torture, one uh, Attica lawyer late years later called it an orgy of brutality. And that is uh, not an exaggeration. So and, and so, just, so then they take, they've taken the prison. Prisoners are forced to strip. They were they lived in brutal conditions post no, no yeah. medical care. Right. Talk a bit about that, and then what what happened afterwards. So they were in the the, the guards had the the state police and the guards have full control of the yard within. I would argue when the gas was dropped, but certainly after all the shooting, and it's at that point that they strip the prisoners. Um, mind you, all their all the windows have been shot out. There's glass everywhere, and these guys naked, some of them with six and seven bullet wounds, are crawling and being forced to run across shards of glass while they're being beaten through two gauntlets of correction officers and troopers. And then they're sent into, really thrown into these uh, stripped cells, uh, uh, naked, um, nothing in there but the steel bed uh, and the toilet, three, four, or five guys in a cell. And that's when the torture begins. Um, They're not allowed to see doctors. Uh, the troopers come by every hour. Uh, they're they're shouting at them. They're threatening them. They're playing Russian roulette with them. They're urinating in their wounds. Uh, you know, just it, it, again, it's hard to kind of capture. But this goes on while, meanwhile, and this is the other part of the Attica story, uh, people on the outside who are trying to support them are mobilizing, bringing everything they can to bear to try to get in this prison, to try to protect these guys. And thus begins this. Um, the middle section of the book is really about. Uh, the state doing whatever it wants with these guys and uh, their allies on the outside uh, trying to do everything they can to protect them on the inside. It's it's really a, a remarkable story there as well. So and let's go there for a moment. I mean, I think that it, it, it's really important because the people that there were 
people you bring back to life for me, like Big Black and others who, um, former former inmate of Attica, he was head of security during the rebellion, um, who died of cancer in 2005, I believe, mm-hmm. if, if mm-hmm. I'm correct. Um, but the, the, the story post-rebellion of both the cover-up mm-hmm. and the efforts by some pretty brave and were ethical people who are trying to open it up. That I mean, give us gives the listeners a sense of what you uncovered. Right. So, so readers are, I think, a little surprised when they pick up the book to see that the um, the uprising, the rebellion is over, uh, you know, uh, just a, a third in, way into the book. And that's because Attica's history gets particularly interesting in the years after, the 40 years after. Initially, uh, the governor uh, has really been forced to call for an investigation. Uh, my book talks a lot about the lengths that the governor's office went uh, to essentially protect its own, protect law enforcement, the lengths the state troopers went to. They were, first of all, allowed to investigate the retaking that they had initi- initiated, even though all of the deaths that day were down to their gunfire. Um, they uh, distorted evidence. They uh, they allowed uh, a trooper to resign who had committed one of the worst killings of a prisoner within a day or two after the uh, retaking. And the governor's office, the state police, the head of the attic investigation had a series of secret meetings where they are all getting their stories straight. But meanwhile, and this is an equally important part on the outside, as I suggested, young law students, uh, lawyers descend upon Attica to try to protect these guys, to try to defend them. And ultimately, the state is supposed to look at both trooper crimes and inmate crimes, but all they do is focus on the prisoners. They indict 62 of them. And thus begins, I would argue, one of the most powerful uh, grassroots, voluntary uh, legal defense efforts uh, ever in American history. I mean, even more so perhaps than the the, the defense of the Scottsboro Boys. Um, a really amazing story. Um, but it didn't grip the nation like Scottsboro did. It did not. Right? Interestingly, right? It, it did not. Um, but the sheer uh, uh, people power that it took to to um, defend sixty two people uh, charged with you know fourteen hundred crimes, some of them capital crime. I mean, it's just really incredible defense effort. So the story in the middle is this sort of seesawing back and forth between this, the state's efforts to cover this up, to not have their people indicted, and the uh, the uh, prisoners uh, them defending themselves and their allies working double time to defend them as well. It's it's a yeah, it's a pretty intense time really from 1971 all the way up uh, uh through the those criminal trials and then into the civil trials. So in in in, in this process, I mean one of the things I think that, that one piece of story is important that you really get into and I think that um um it's important that the families of the guards who were killed and de- or wounded very badly, were also kind of left out to dry Absolutely. by the state. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I know that, the, uh, that folks would assume that this is a story just about prisoner rights, but in fact it's this really uh, important kind of David and Goliath story about uh, hostages as well. The former hostages at Attica were not only dispensable to the state of New York. I found uh, direct evidence that the state of New York knew 
that they were going to kill hostages when they went in. And even though they were advised by everybody not to do it, they did it anyway. And so not only were hostages shot, uh, killed, wounded, but then, and perhaps one of the most insulting parts of the story, the state of New York shows up at their house, houses, uh, and as they, as the former hostages are recovering or the widows are grieving, they say, we're going to take care of you. Don't worry. Here's a check to tide you over. And mind you, some of these families had, you know, a large number of children. They had no paycheck. Uh, and they cashed these meager checks, uh, some, you know, $72, $42. And by doing so, the state of New York had ensured that they would, quote, unquote, uh, elect a remedy, which meant that they could never sue the state of New York. Uh, so they were swindled. They were actively swindled. I tell that story. And so they, like the prisoners, uh, embark on really what will be a 40-year journey to to try to have some moment of justice with the state of New York. So I, I want to get to the epilogue here before we introduce some other guests to come in and join our conversation sure. what's happening today. Um, uh, the, the talk talk a bit about your epilogue, which I found as powerful as the book itself. Oh, thank you. I mean, because of what this what Attica meant, mm-hmm. what Attica meant for the rest of this country for the forty years after, in terms of both prison reform and then and the destruction of prison reform, what it meant for the drug laws under Rockefeller, and how that fed into. I think the 1990s and President Clinton and what they did in terms of uh, mass incarceration, I mean, the significance of, of Attica. So I, I really try to make the case that there's uh, that Attica has a dual legacy, and it's it's, a, it's somewhat contradictory, but 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 uh, both are equally powerful. One is that. Uh, because of the lies told at Attica that you mentioned in the beginning of the segment, that the fact that the state of New York says the prisoners created all the bloodshed at Attica, the created, committed the atrocities, the nation as a whole uh, is, is uh, swindled. It, it, it feels that prisoners are animals. They are not deserving of human rights. And Attica becomes this emotional fuel for an already beginning war on crime, uh, war on drugs, that is going to take this nation in a most punitive direction. Um, it becomes that call. You say Attica, and it means the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. And it leads to this country becoming uh, really the world's largest uh, jailer. It's one of the most punitive uh, penal uh, states. However, uh, the other part of Attica is the story of resistance. And uh, from the very beginning, when those 1,300 guys crossed political lines and racial lines and language barriers and stood together for basic human rights, uh, that spirit of Attica is also its legacy. Because today, as we sit here with this enormous crisis of mass incarceration, uh, prisoners are again trying to speak out. And very importantly, they hearken back to Attica. It is, uh, it, is a, it is a term to them that means we can stand together and we can ask and demand uh, to be treated as human beings. So Attica is really an interesting legacy that is, you know, complex. Um, uh, and I think it, it, its ultimate legacy is yet to be seen, what we'll do with this moment. And we're going to take a very short break and come right back um, with our guest, Dr. Heather Ann Thompson, and her book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971, um, and be joined by two other guests to talk about just what she just said, how it's, being, how it's picking up right now in our country and what the new Attica's may be. Maybe not quite like Attica, but what is happening in our country. Stay with us. We'll be right back.